Welcome to season six of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Magruder. This season, we will hear from researchers, advocates, and folks with lived experience in child welfare. Through these conversations, we hope to gain insight on how to meaningfully co-create knowledge alongside those we aim to serve here at the Institute, children, families, and workers. Let's get started. Today, we're joined by Melissa Green Esquire with the Fort Lauderdale Independence Training and Education, or Flight Center, in Broward County. Melissa initially began creating Hope Court in 2018 while working at Legal Aid. The program continues and is currently being run through the Flight Center. Melissa serves as the Hope Court Program Director. Hi, thanks for having me today. We're also joined by Dr. Angela Yale, Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the Nova Southeastern University College of Education and School of Criminal Justice. Dr. Yale has been working with Melissa and her team to evaluate Hope Court. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. And finally, we're joined by Aaliyah Fitzgerald, a young adult who participates in Hope Court. Hi, good morning. Good morning, and thank you all for being here. So, Melissa, can you start off by telling us about Hope Court? Absolutely. Hope Court, it stands for Helping Older Teens Powerfully Engage. It was created to change the child welfare system and improve outcomes for our system's oldest teens. And it is a problem-solving court, actually an entire program. It's founded in the theory and practical application of restorative practices, which is derived from the work of restorative justice. We do utilize restorative practices and theory in all of our programming. And our youth who come into Hope Court begin at just about 17 years of age. They all have a permanency goal of APLA or another planned permanent living arrangements or are similarly situated, meaning maybe there's an adoption goal, but adoption is not really something that is likely to happen. So we have our older teens who are likely to celebrate adulthood, come into their 18th birthday while in the care of the state and without intact family. And all of the adults come in, they're all given an adult support team that is going to consist of child welfare professionals in our amazing system in Broward County. So that will be their social worker, their case manager, a life coach, an attorney ad litem, perhaps a guardian ad litem. And all of our adult support teams are provided trainings in restorative practices and also nonviolent communication. And all of these amazing professionals from many different community agencies join together in the service and mission of Hope Court. We have about three main pieces to our programming. One of them is our restorative legal processes, and those are interactive court hearings which make the legal system really accessible for our youth and empower them to be involved in their child welfare proceedings. So these special court hearings are conducted every six weeks, and that's instead of every six months, which is what's required by statute. And the proceedings are held in a circular nature. We're actually on Zoom, and we have found a way to make Zoom extremely connecting in nature. We begin with a relationship-building circle go-around. Everyone answers the fun question that we start out with, whether that be if you're a superhero, what would your power be? Or would you rather swim in a pool filled with maple syrup or Nutella? And the judge is answering that. The attorneys are answering that. The youth is answering that. And we do that every six weeks. It builds a community. I promise you that. The proceedings are youth-led and they're interactive. And the circle format that we use does ensure that all voices are heard. 
really empowers our youth to be involved in their case, to take ownership of their life. And rather than going to court and just hearing about themselves and what will be happening to them, these court hearings are scripted. They're designed to be restorative in nature and place emphasis on connecting our youth with their legal involvement. Our second prong, and really, I think the beating heart are our supportive youth circles. Before every court hearing, we have pre-court listening circles, and these are conducted with the youth and adult support team. They allow for relationship building. They allow for celebrations. They allow for mourning, and they really create a restorative space where we can celebrate achievement and connect during conflict. These circles are a safe space where we can discuss conflict, where we can brainstorm effective ways to meet needs. They are youth-led. And then additionally, we use our circles to provide independent living skills workshops throughout the year and explore different topics during those independent living skills trainings. We also use supportive youth circles to work through conflict as needed, to have additional celebration as needed, and to work to repair harm as needed. And then our third piece is our transitional independent living planning. We have really worked to create a safe and empowering space for our youth to constructively plan their future. In Hope Court, we do state-required transitional independent living planning through an interactive restorative process, which we call My Virtual Vision Board. This process, these vision boards are done in a supportive youth circle, which we have adapted from Epic Ohana, which is an amazing organization in Hawaii that provides transitional independent living planning to their youth in care in a very restorative manner. And for us in our vision boards, we have our youth invite their support team, and they're encouraged to dream their biggest dreams in a safe space. We begin and end with specific circle goal rounds to encourage our youth and build community connections. And we have specific areas that we will explore in depth regarding independent living, such as education, employment, housing, finance, health. We create detailed to-do lists where youth are paired with adult support team members for support in completing necessary tasks to achieve youth goals. And the process truly is uplifting and joyful celebration of near adulthood, as well as being informational and vital. It's extremely connecting. We've seen really great results from it and the youth and adults have really enjoyed it. That's kind of what the programming piece looks like and what we were designed to do. How was the need for the program identified? Originally in 2018, Legal Aid got a grant. My former boss, my dear friend, Walter Hahnemann, got this grant from the Florida Bar Foundation to research bringing restorative justice into the child welfare system and what that would look like. I stepped into the position. I work with older teens, have for a long time, and have always wanted to explore how can we better serve? How can we better assist? How can we create better connection for our youth who are going to be celebrating adulthood without intact family? What I had been seeing with the youth whom I was working with and my colleagues is we had been seeing a lot of disconnection and a lot of youth being terminated from these programs almost immediately. Some of them not even wanting to participate. And a lot of times like the last court hearing before the youth would age out before they would turn 18 would be such an adversarial hearing where certain things wouldn't have gotten done. And we would have a case manager and a youth sort of like pitted against each other, playing a blame game in front of a judge who wanted to know why certain things hadn't happened. And right before that youth was turning 18 at a position where they were going to need that case manager more than ever, the relationship was being broken in the courtroom right before our eyes. And we were for the most part, not seeing great results. And we're just wondering, is this what we're seeing? Like, is this across the board? And so when 
we did team up with Nova, we decided to get baseline data on what was going on for our youth who were transitioning to independent living across the state of Florida. So we did collaborate with Robert Latham, who's at University of Miami, and he completed the baseline data for us and did find that it really was something that we're seeing. It wasn't just something that we were seeing, you know, in our small subset of cases, but Robert compiled data from youth who had aged out between 2014 and 2018. So remember, we were just starting creating this in 2018. And he reviewed data from the department's Florida Safe Families Network from those four years. And it showed that between 60 to 70% of youth who were potentially eligible for the programs like EFC or PES either did not participate, opted out before their eligibility period ended or were terminated and did not return. Importantly, Robert noted that none of the available data was showing the quality of the outcomes or experiences of the youth. However, given these high rates of youth who are disengaging, there really was reason for us to look into things and believe that the programs that's currently operating were not meeting perceived needs of youth who were meant to be served by those programs. And Robert did break it down even further and noted that a significant number of youth did not participate in either program. Nearly a third of approvals resulted in unsuccessful terminations. Failure happened quickly. The largest number of opt-outs and unsuccessful terminations occurred in the first two months, so 60 days of participation. Re-engagement rates were significantly lower for EFC than PEZ. Almost a third of youth opted out of EFC once approved and very few transitioned from EFC to PEZ. And so that just led us to start thinking like these programs were designed to provide significant financial support, housing, and supportive services. Nevertheless, a large percentage of the youth were not fully taking advantage of the programs as they were offered and really looking at why is that happening? And I do think one of the benefits of us having a qualitative study, gathering this qualitative information through interviews is that we have numbers, but we don't have a lot of information on that quality of experience. And I think that plays very strongly into our mission for Hope Court, which is improving connection, compassion, and building community, creating a space where our youth are deeply heard and co-creators in their new life and working with our youth to empower them to make positive behavioral choices. Our outcome measures were designed to look at the qualitative information that we think we need in order to help improve these programs so that we get more participation. Like we know we don't have the numbers, but like, we really need the quality of information to know like why, like what is going on with the individual experience. And one of the main things that we wanted to do as a research team was to redefine traditional measures of success and look to measuring success as an improvement in our teens, social and emotional health, increased feelings of hopefulness and connectedness and perceived levels of support. So we do also have measures of increased youth engagement in legal processes, development of their transitional independent living plan and independent living skills trainings. We have increased participation of our adult support team in transitional independent living processes and improved relationships with that case manager, that social worker, and all of those like family members, those child welfare professionals involved in their life, and very importantly, increased feelings of hopefulness. And it's just one of the things that's really important to us is saying like we're working with youth who have experience unimaginable amounts of trauma and change in their life. And we need to look at other measures of success beyond the ones that we're looking at, which really include how do they feel really? And 
when you ask that question, I think it just kind of brings you back to restorative practices because it's all about connection. It's really all about that. It's about creating that brave, safe space where our youth are heard and where we're doing things with them. So our mission and our outcome measures are tied very closely together because that's what we are set out to do. And Angela, you've been working with the Hope Court team since the beginning. So how did you get involved in the project? So I was approached to participate in this project. So my colleague, Dr. Marcelo Castro, he is the principal investigator on this project. And he said we had the opportunity to work with Legal Aid. At the time, Legal Aid was our partner. Now, of course, the Flight Center we're working with on this project. But he said that they were planning to implement restorative justice practices in dependency court for foster care youth who were aging out and that we would be the research partner. And I said, of course, I would love to participate. That's exactly the type of project I love to work on. So we convened a research team, myself, Dr. Castro, Dr. James Pan, Dr. Tammy Kushner, And we started meeting with Melissa, I believe it was in 2019 or so, to plan the project. And it's really been a truly wonderful partnership, I would say, ever since. And Aaliyah, how about you? You actually participate in Hope Court. So how did you hear about it and what made you want to participate? I heard about it when I was about to age out. I was 17 and my lawyer came to me and she was like, there's this I think program that they have, and it's called Hope Court, and you would have meetings like every six weeks, and you would like talk about everything you're going through. They provide opportunities. You have like workshops you can join, and you can get gift cards, and yeah, and I was like, okay, I'll join. I could use the support. So Angela, can you tell us a little bit more about the evaluation of Hope Court? Sure. I would say early on when we were first reviewing what was going to happen with the program and what it was, I think there were two really important factors that we needed to consider. And one was that this is a really novel application of restorative practices. So if you go to the literature, there's a lot on the use of restorative justice and criminal justice and the use of restorative practices in school settings. But there really isn't anything out there on the use of restorative practices in dependency court. So that was something we really had to think about. The second thing was that we'd be working with a very small sample size. So, you know, this would be a very small cohort of about 10 to 12 youth. And we wanted to learn more about how this program was implemented and its impact on the youth and the stakeholders. So ultimately, we decided on using a case study approach for this particular project. And I think it's worked really well. We started with the first cohort using an exploratory case study model and then transitioning now into more of an explanatory case study model now that we have a better understanding of what's occurring, you know, within Hope Court and how the restorative practices are being utilized. As the focus of this season of the podcast is really on meaningful engagement with youth and as practices in terms of research and evaluation, what special considerations did you keep in mind to accommodate working with this particular population, such as consent procedures? So in the IRB's eyes, working with this population, they actually are considered a vulnerable population in two categories. So children and minors under the age of 18, and also children in foster care. But it's really critical, particularly for this project, to hear the voice of the youth and so that they could inform and tell us, you know, what their experiences were like so we could really truly understand the implementation of Hope Court and its effectiveness. We had pretty extensive consent procedures, I think, for every guardianship and custody circumstance, we had a different consent procedure, (laughs) Melissa can tell you. I think probably the most challenging would have been for youth where the parents' whereabouts were unknown. 
Uh, Melissa, help me with this if I'm getting this wrong, but if an affidavit of diligent search had not been filed, there was a process for reaching out to the parents, a timeline for that. You know, if they had an attorney reaching out to the attorney, if they didn't reaching out to them. So we just really had to a lot, a lot of time for that process. And then once all of that was concluded, we then of course consented all of the youth and went through all of the details of the study with the youth. So I think it's just building in sufficient time to be able to go through that process and make sure that the youth were protected through the consenting process. Yeah. And we've noted in the literature, there's really not a consensus around best practices for consenting youth, particularly, like you said, youth who are doubly vulnerable by means of, you know, being minors as well as in the child welfare system. So I appreciate the time and attention that you gave to that process. So I'm curious, what have you found so far between the first couple cohorts? So I would say the biggest finding, the main theme from the first cohort is that Hope Court represents a substantial change from the typical dependency court process. I think a typical dependency court is more of an adversarial model where you have parties coming in with representation and they're coming in to represent their own interests and advocate for their own interests or argue for their own interests and can create sometimes more conflict than collaboration. So with Hope Court, the focus is on community building, relationship building, and everyone's working toward the same goal, which is to support the youth, provide the needed services so that they can successfully transition into adulthood. So I think that was the main finding. Some other themes that we noted were that youth were engaged and had a voice in the process. That was a big theme. The frequency and quality of contact and a collaborative approach was a key positive element and that youth had a reliable support network of trusted adults that they could rely on as they were transitioning to adulthood. We also wanted to look at the percentage of youth who remained in extended foster care or EFC and the PES program, but for those that go on to higher education, that they're still able to be eligible for the benefits once they're post 18. So we wanted to look at the percentage of those that remain in those programs once they turned 18. And we found that 70% of the Hope Court youth had remained in EFC or PES, and that compared to the 30 to 40% participation rate of typical foster care youth. We had to note, though, that we did have a small sample size that is a limitation in that finding, but it just showed some promising results there. Yeah, certainly really encouraging. So Melissa, you and Kiara Jackson, the Hope Court Assistant Director, are very engaged in the implementation of Hope Court. So what has it been like for you all to collaborate with Dr. Yale and her team on the evaluation component of this pilot? It's been fantastic. I have just loved working with our research team at NSU from the very beginning. Like Dr. Yale said, when we met, it was early 2019. And I came to them with these ideas and they were like, we're going to turn this into logic models. (laughs) And I remember it being some of the most challenging hours of my life, sitting down in those conferencing rooms and trying to turn these thoughts and ideas into these little boxes and then create this design and we created all of the assessments ourselves together as a team. I took the city certification course through NOVA for the ethics of human research. And the team has been just very uplifting and inclusive and collaborative. And it's been an amazing, amazing venture together. Really, it has It's been incredible to use knowledge of what's going on in the child welfare system and turn those into 
the assessment pieces that we use to make them designed like so perfectly to get at what we really want to learn. And I mean, honestly, what we really want to learn here is the truth of how we can help. And I can say that the team at Nova and myself and Kara were so on the same page of truly wanting to create change and wanting to make sure that whatever information we're getting is the information, good, bad, or otherwise, we want to know how to help. And it's such an ethical team. It's been such a blessing. Truly, I love them all so much. And we've worked together so well and sharing all the expertise that everyone has and everyone comes with a different background and different educational piece. And it's always felt like a partnership. And I think that's something that has really meant a lot to me. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a psychologist. And I'm, you know, working with these folks who are deans and psychologists and directing parts of the university. And it's always been this like amazing collaboration in unity to work, to help youth. We're really all very excited about restorative justice and restorative practices. And it's been one of the highlights of this entire thing is us being able to work together. That's great. And you touched on a couple of things that I think are so important. The first being this idea of logic models. I love logic models. It's something that we grapple with a lot at the Institute. It's very challenging, right? To express these ideas in your head sometimes in a way that makes sense to other people. So developing programs from the bottom up, I'm so glad that you had that support from folks with that research and evaluation acumen to help you develop that and get those ideas on paper in a way that communicates what this program is. And then for them, I assume Dr. Yale is helpful in evaluating, right? You identify what outcomes that you're particularly looking for. You identify what those activities are. So I appreciate the really thoughtful approach that you all have taken to this. And I also want to say, and we've talked about this with other guests on our podcast, you touched on the importance of what I'm really thinking of as vulnerability with our community partners. Oftentimes researchers and evaluators come into these partnerships and it can be I think a little bit scary for folks who are trying to implement the programs because they're not really sure what folks are going to find and they're really feeling very strongly about their particular program. And I do think it takes a lot of vulnerability for folks running those programs to say, I want to know everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, what are we doing well and what could we be doing better on? So I just wanted to say, I appreciate that perspective that you bring to this. Thank you. Oh, I do have one other thought, something that like works really well with us as the teams is having been working in the field in child welfare for quite a long time before starting to work in Hope Court, it was extremely helpful to have relationships with all of the different community agencies and partners, and then be able to bring that knowledge to the research team because it is such a collaborative process from youth identification to like those consent procedures. I mean, we literally sat down together and I'm coming from the legal background and looking at every potential situation our youth are coming from. And we're sitting there, like you said, from the ground up creating, what does every situation of consent look like? What's the process that we're going to go through for every different potential youth and family situation and circumstance, creating the programming, creating the assessments for every piece of programming, going through initial IRB approval, and then amendments for everything after. So it really has been a ground up and great collaboration of bringing together like a lot of different 
expertise together. And I think the number one thing with all of it has been relationship building and having a lot of respect and value and gratitude for everybody who is touching this really and involved. So I'd like to turn back to Aaliyah. What has it been like for you to share feedback about Hope Court with Melissa and the evaluation team? Honestly, it was pretty easy because there's nothing bad. And I feel like they have helped me so much. And it just like flows out of me. Like if they ask me questions, like I don't really have to think about it. Like, you know how when you write something, you have to like sit there and like really think like it just flows and everything's really easy. I'm just always happy to share like information. And I hope this project becomes really big one day because I feel like there are teens who need more help than me who really like deserve it and would benefit from. So it sounds like having them make things as easy as possible on you to provide that feedback is something that other folks might consider when they're trying to work with youth and get feedback on their programming. I think that makes a lot of sense. So did you ever have any concerns about what you were sharing or how your information might be used? Um, honestly, no. What sticks out to you most about your experience with your participation in Hope Court? How has the experience been like for you? I think it's been a good experience. For me, I can say I'm a very closed off person and I don't feel safe with people like easily. Like vulnerability is just not in my character right now. And I feel like they have made it easier for me to open up and feel safe because like every time we have the six week circles are like right before court and they ask me how I'm doing and you could just see that they really care because there's a lot of people in this profession that don't care and you can tell like even if they don't say it, you can read it so they always make me feel so welcome and like the support is just so overwhelming and I've never really had support like this before in my life I think it's great yeah I can say I have a relationship with like almost everybody that I talk to in hope court that's amazing Can you tell me a little bit more when you said you can tell when people care versus when they don't, what does that look like to you? What does that feel like to you when people care? So for example, when she said they open up with the questions, it really does like everybody gets to laughing and like people are smiling and the, and then when I would talk to certain people in the past, there was never really an, are you okay? How are you doing? They just always ask me, especially like Melissa, she's always like, are you okay? Like, do you need anything? And I don't think I've really had that in the past from the people on my team. And usually like, I just, I think people that are like higher up in the system and work higher up, they just don't really care. And yeah, I think it's just like their energy and like phone calls could be very short and there's no connection. Yeah. So really taking the time to invest, it sounds like in getting to know you as a person. And like you said, even just kind of laughing together and having these prompts that make us realize, oh, we're all human and we all have different preferences about what kind of swimming pool we want to swim in or something like that. That's great. So Melissa and Angela, based on what you're learning from these pilot cohorts, what is next for Hope Court? From a programming piece, we would love to see ultimately Hope Court be able to serve more youth. We would love to be able to share this program with the state of Florida and with other states. We've had inquiries from judicial officers within the state, outside of the state, who are interested in the program. 
challenge is always funding with programs. But when we just are looking at this with the lens of the heart, what we want to do is to serve the most amount of youth. And one of the really interesting things I think that we learned through the research too, is that we're really serving the adults too, in creating this connected space in using nonviolent communication in the way we speak and in coming together, everyone has felt a lot less alone. I can say that as somebody who has been a frontline worker in the child welfare system for a long time, directly as a youth attorney, is that a lot of times there's very big traumas and very big conflicts and very big problems that we can't necessarily solve. And it feels incredibly overwhelming. And there is something to coming together in this collaborative spirit where we're really listening and providing space to be heard, to just provide space to mourn and let everybody have a chance to speak and be heard without judgment. And also know a little bit about everyone's feelings and needs and where they're coming from, because it's a lot more humanizing. Additionally, to know what everybody else is doing, what every other child welfare professional is doing and how we can do it together. It shares a lot of space. We can lean on each other. We can show up in a different way for each other and for our youth. And so it's ended up I think creating a really safe space for the adults as well, where they also feel seen and heard and experience some gratitude and know that they're valued. We would really like to expand this for the good of our youth, for the good of our child welfare professionals, to help with retention, to just really meet a lot of needs that exist for our youth and our child welfare professionals that I truly believe can be met if we embody restorative practices and nonviolent communication in our child welfare system. How about you, Angela? Yeah, I think just from the research perspective, I mean, we would love to continue to learn more about this model and the positive impacts that it has on both the youth and all of the stakeholders participating. And as Melissa mentioned, I think as far as next steps is Dr. Pan presented at the American Evaluation Association on cohort one recently, and I think it's publishing on that first course, sort of getting the word out there, disseminating the findings so that other researchers might look at this and want to pick it up and other areas might want to implement similar programs or aspects of the program. So I think that's probably the next step and just continuing to learn more about the program and then also sharing what we've learned so far with the community. And Melissa, you've talked a little bit about nonviolent communication. I'm wondering if you can give us a broad overview of what that is and why it's so important to the particular processes in Hope Court. Sure. So we train our teams overall in restorative practices. The training materials we use are from the International Institute for Restorative Practices. Kara and myself were both trained there. And through that, we learn about a lot of the foundational theories that we use in Hope Court. And when we learn about some of those foundational theories, we also start teaching, okay, so now what do these restorative practices look like and how can we be restorative practitioners? So we teach about this continuum of practices that we can use, and it's going to include from as little as just our communication that we're using all the time to small group conversations, to circles, to actually restorative conferencing, to help with major harms. So for our communication piece, what we really train in is nonviolent communication, which was created by Marshall Rosenberg. And we have been teaching our team all of the pieces, actually Dr. Cindy Bigby, who is in Tallahassee, has been teaching our teams. She is 
my teacher and Kira's teacher as well. And what the tenets really are is providing empathy and providing empathy through presence, really being present and listening and taking feelings and needs guesses and making sure that we don't respond with other conversational responses like relating or giving advice or one-upping, but actually just providing that space for our youth to be heard, for our adults to be heard, reflecting back what we're hearing without observation or judgment, and then really guessing, you know, I'm guessing that felt really frustrating and you are probably really hurt. And then thinking about some needs that might come from a certain situation, like, and I'm guessing you really need some support here and you'd like some fairness and maybe some understanding and some shared reality around that. And so we do teach with a feelings and needs sheet where we use universal feelings and needs and really come to see that although we may all use different strategies to meet our needs, a lot of our needs are the same and it does create an increased level of consciousness and understanding and allows us to have this like brave space where needs for being heard are really met. And I heard Aaliyah saying that it was easier to talk. I have thoughts that some of that comes from having a little bit less judgment in our circles because they are really designed to be a space for our youth to be heard and to really explore those feelings and needs. And when our youth have had a chance to be heard and there's space for other messaging to come through, to have a connecting request and say like, would you be willing to hear how that was for me? Or would it be okay with you if I related on this? And so there definitely creates more space for allowing needs to be met of being heard and then also being heard ourselves. We also design our judicial scripts for our court hearings to create space for interaction and and youth-led courtroom proceedings as well. In a traditional dependency hearing, the attorneys ask questions of the witnesses. The case manager may testify based on the questions that the Department of Children and Families attorney asks them. And sometimes we have a youth there and they sit and they hear the entire court hearing. And perhaps at the very end, the judge will say, like, do you have anything you want to add? And sometimes the youth might. And sometimes the thought is like, well, everyone already has like an understanding, I guess, of what they think of me. So nope, I'm good. I guess you got this. While the youth kind of sits there and hears everyone talk about them, right? And about their life. And this really flips that on its head because the judge directs all the questions to the youth and the youth provides the information. And then we do go in a circular process. So everyone who is there has a chance to share their voice and to share their thoughts, their concerns, their celebrations, it flips things on their head a little bit because we are now conducting this legal proceeding with our youth instead of like to them. We're really trying to empower our youth to be a part of what is happening. And that is really one of the tenets of restorative practices. And what we teach is that we don't want to do things to you and we don't want to do things for you. We want to do things with you and create the most amount of engagement that way. My last question is to you, Aaliyah. So what do you think is the number one thing that folks like Dr. Yale and Melissa and myself should know when they are collaborating with young adults who have lived experience in the system? I can really only speak for myself because we are all different. But for me, I think the biggest thing is consistency at this point point in our life we don't have a lot of that we don't have a lot of stability and for me personally I don't really have family I can just go to and talk to whenever and I think that's a lot of people's cases in foster care 
So when you guys are consistent and you constantly check up and ask if we're okay and just be there, like just be an ear or shoulder to cry on, I think that is really important. Like I really believe in that strongly. I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today. If you're interested in learning more about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.ficw.fsu.edu. You can also follow the Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at FSU Child Welfare. Thank you to our executive producer, Mariana Tutwiler, our assistant director of communications, Emily Joyce, and our audio engineer and editor, Izzy Craig. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Lisa Magruder for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare.